This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. My guest today, David Richardson, was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. After studying at Phoenix College, working for UPS as a driver, and a little stint as a stand-up comic, something he hated, David headed to Los Angeles because he wanted to write for his hero, Johnny Carson. Johnny never hired him, but David managed to find his way into TV, writing for Hee Haw, Zubilee Zoo, and the new Leave it to Beaver. David got his big network break writing for the critically acclaimed Grand for NBC. David's written for The Simpsons, The John Larroquette Show, winning a Humanitas Prize, Malcolm in the Middle, Manhattan AZ, Two and a Half Men, and is currently executive producing the Netflix hit F is for Family, starring Bill Burr. So for those reasons, and many more, I'm beyond honored and truly thrilled to welcome to Storybeat today one of the funniest writers I know, David Richardson. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. Oh, yeah. So where did all this begin? When when did you start thinking to yourself, I could write comedy? Were you a little boy at the time? Yeah. Um, I tell the story, and it's a true story. You know, I grew up in the days of getting spanked and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, and my father was chasing me around the house. I must have been six or something. And I also watched a lot of TV, so I had a lot of quotes from TV and mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, just as he was lifting the belt to whack my butt, I said, I'm too young to die. And <laughs> he fell down laughing. And I was just <laughs> quoting something that I had heard on one of my mother's soap operas. Right. Or and it was at that moment that I discovered the power of, of humor. And then the next time he was chasing me around, I said, I'm too young to die. And. He spanked me and said, you got to get new material. So <laughs> all my life I've been looking for new material. Well, that's that's an auspicious start. Um, do, do, so when you started watching Carson, because I'm fascinated, I was a big fan of Johnny Carson as well. I thought he was the the king. He, well, he was called the king. What was it about him for you that, that um, made him a hero? He made me laugh. You know, I really started watching him in fourth or fifth grade. Mm-hmm. I would, you know, I would get up, the whole house would be asleep, and I'd head back out to the living room because we only had one television in those days. Sure. Not one in every room. Nope. I think I have seven now or something crazy <laughs> like that. Um, and I would, I would literally lay inches away from the TV with the volume as low as possible, and I would watch his monologue and 
his the beat the bit that he would do after whether it was tea time movie or Karnak the Magnificent yeah. and then maybe if he had a, a good stand up guest I would sneak awake for, stay awake for that too like Rodney or somebody um, but I always it always made me feel smarter that I got the jokes our family was kind of a news buff family and uh you know and vietnam was going on and nixon and all this crazy stuff and it always made me feel smart that i that i got it and i could see how johnny could you know control an audience it was it was really it's it's still one of my favorite things to do is to watch a stand-up comic um, take his audience on a ride. Mm-hmm. And I'm working with this guy, Bill Burr, now. If, if you haven't seen him in, in person, he he pisses the audience off, but then he slowly brings them in and just sucker punches them. And it's it's uh, really a thing of beauty. So that's a, that's a I, that's a true skill set to be able to do that. It's he's he, he's on unreal. He's unreal because. I just saw him in New York a couple of weeks ago, and he was doing a bits on abortion, and it was like, wow, that's like the third rail, you know. And uh, uh, but he got him laughing about it at some of the hypocrisy of it, and and. Uh, well, George Carlin and, uh, used to say you could make a joke out of anything if you could yeah, make it funny. Yeah, well, George Carlin was brilliant too. That's for sure. I met him back in the day. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was actually writing for Flip Wilson, uh, uh, who was trying to do some Showtime special. And we met at Carlin's house. Wow. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, and I was really young. I was in my early 20s or something. D- did you understand at that time how big it was for you to be sitting there with those guys? I, I was dumbfounded. I was, it was so big. I was just... I was just in awe uh, uh, of these two guys. Sure. And uh, Flip was a little out of it. That was during his rougher times. But uh, (laughs) I knew Carlin's brother, Patrick Carlin, too, a little Hmm. bit. Was he a writer? That's when I first got into town. That that was almost your introduction to everything. Yeah, yeah. I used to have this... um, this manager, his name was uh, Jackie Kahane, and he handled a lot of joke writers. He was a former uh, stand-up comic himself, and he warmed up the audience for Elvis for the last seven years of Elvis's life. Oh, wow. And once he told me, uh, I asked him what was the biggest crowd he played in front of, and he said 106,000 at the <laughs> University of Michigan, something crazy. <laughs> I said, well, that's got to be really difficult um, to, to try to get the attention of 106,000 people waiting for Elvis, you know. And he said, kid, they just didn't come to see Elvis, you know. <laughs> and he was dead serious. Um, but uh, he was the one who introduced me to a lot of these these guys. I wrote a lot of jokes for a lot of guys. So, 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 so you, you've written for a lot of stand-ups then? Back in the day, I did, and they were all old timers because Jackie Kahane was an old timer. Mm-hmm. So I wrote for uh, those 
Dean Martin Rose, I wrote some stuff, and uh, uh, some of that know, stuff was it, hilarious. Oh God, I still watch Rickles. Unbelievable. Rickles and and uh, Foster Brooks taking down Rickles was is one of my d favorite. D things. No, nobody wrote for Rickles, right? Nobody wrote for Rickles. He just he just did I it. Know. I've never met anyone. Who... He, he, cl he claims that he'd never wrote a single word of an act. He just did it. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He claims I it was... I did not know that. Yeah, he, that's that he's, he's on record saying he, nobody ever wrote for him. He didn't write any of his material. He just went out and did it. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he was awesome, and he was all attitude. And some of the jokes don't even make sense that he's... He's doing, but it, he sells it with attitude. Yes, exactly. He sells it all with it, attitude. Were yeah, you, were you as a as a boy? Were you a class clown? I was. I got in a lot of trouble, but I also used to, I used to write papers, straight papers, uh, with humor. I remember I wrote, I wrote one science project. It was we're studying venereal disease or something. <laughs> and I wrote. Uh, VD and you, how much is that shanker in the window? <laughs> and and then I would get A's just for the <laughs> for the titles, and then I'd put little jokes and and stuff. And <laughs> and so by the time I was in high school, uh, uh, I used to I would I took a, they actually had a humor class for the people in advanced English could study. Uh, like science fiction or uh, or the romantics, or, and I took humor. And ten years after I had arrived in Los Angeles, I was going through my high school annual, and uh, so this was, you know, I, yeah, 83, 84, something like that. And I was looking through my high school annual because a reunion was coming up, and uh, my that English teacher who taught me humor said, you're going to have a wonderful life as a humor writer. And I had never even really noticed that before. Mm -hmm. So some people knew before I did. I used to, when I worked for UPS, I wrote on the UPS newsletter and was always pushing the envelope so, a little bit. <laughs> so uh, so, so you, you, without even making a conscious effort to be a professional, you were already on the road without you even realizing Yeah, that. you know, you know, I, I come from Phoenix, Arizona, and when I grew up, it was like a 10-horse town, not a one-horse town, but a 10-horse Now it's like the fifth largest city in the United yeah, States. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I just didn't know about this stuff other than when I saw on TV, I didn't know anybody in the business. I didn't know anybody who had an uncle in the business or um, or anything. My mom my mom knew uh, a secretary to uh, a guy by the name of Phil Harris, yes. who was a recording artist. So yes. when I was five, six, and seven, we used to come and visit her, and she would take us to the Hamburger Hamlet, all these what we thought were Hollywood places. And stuff, and I just became addicted. I wanted to live in California. Uh, as much as I love Arizona, I had a house up to, back there till a few years ago. Um, uh, but you but knew just, L.A. was was the place for you. L.A. was, was you wanted to be in the business. It was the culture. I didn't really have much interest in New York 
or I wanted to be in L.A., you know, pretty girls and, and uh, you know, all these great guys, these rat pack guys, mm-hmm. like that. I, I just, I really romanticized the hell out of it. And, uh, so, so you didn't go to school to write comedy at all, other than no. taking a humor class. You just, you just did it. No. no, there wasn't. Now it's like everywhere. Script writing classes are everywhere. Oh, yeah. Back mm-hmm. then... It was, you know, you could go to USC or UCLA. Uh, I ended up going back to Los Angeles City College after I moved back here because they had a great television program. It was mostly production, but I could write, and they have a very good drama school, so I could I could grab talent out of there mm-hmm. and, and do stuff. And I had a very encouraging teacher there. Um, his name is George Bowden, and, and he was awesome. Um, but you were ambitious young. I was really ambitious young. I I had actually lived out here when I was 20, and I was doing um, uh, uh, stand-up at the comedy store in Westwood right. on, on Open like mic nights. nights and stuff. I'd get there really early. And I was underage, you know, so I'd have to get there real early before the bouncers got there and stuff and just sign in and then just get a beer and go in the corner. Was there an audience that early? Uh, no, but they didn't go on. I would be there like an hour and a half early. And uh, by the time they started the show, which I think was 8 or 8.30, uh, there'd be an audience. So. Uh, okay, so why did you, you say you hated it? What is it about stand-up that you hated? I didn't. I lack confidence. I guess, or I did lack confidence. Part, part of the, part of it is ha- having that having that confidence and being able to get up there and sell the lines. Right. Well, I didn't. I didn't have a whole lot of confidence, and I would, I would literally, the adrenaline would flow in my body so bad that I, I had trouble uh, uh, remembering stuff and <laughs> where I was going with this joke or that train of thought and. Um, you know, it would take me two days to calm down after it, even if I had a good night. So uh, I remember once I didn't sleep for two nights. Wow. Uh, after, and I didn't even, I didn't even bomb, you know. I was just, I wasn't you, George you, Carlin, but I didn't bomb. You had you had and, flop sweats even though there was no reason to have them. Oh, man, I used to have flop sweat you know, five or six years into the network business, pitching stuff. And then one day, it, uh, you know, uh, I got cancer when I, in 1994, mm-hmm. and about that time I said, what the fuck are you being nervous about? Just go do it. And I did. So, um, uh, you know, I don't. I don't feel that way anymore. I speak a lot at classes and stuff like that. H- having and having a having a disease like that will give you perspective, won't it? It gave me a lot of perspective. You know, they had given me a five percent five percent chance to live. As a matter of fact, wow. I celebrated my twenty five year anniversary well, of it. Congratulations! Uh, that's that's incredible. It was incredible, and you know what? My mother was dying of the same disease at the mm. same time. And I said, oh, smoking can't get me. And it got me, and I was 38. Wow. Yeah. 
So but they so, were very aggressive with me because I was so young, and they beat me up pretty good. But they got it. Knock on, knock on wood. Twenty-five years later, you know, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. So you've and and you've uh, you've left a huge legacy in the meantime, and you're you're doing more. Oh, well, that's I, I never put that word to it, but yeah, I've got a lot of credits, I guess, and uh, still doing it, um, which is you know, most of the guys I grew up with are. You know, back home, or you know, there's not a lot of us left. Mm. Um, so, so all right. Like so last night there was a writers' guild meeting for this agency thing, and I could have been the next to the oldest guy there. Is that right? Yeah. You're not. It's, you're not that old, David. I'm not that old. No, I just, I just have a. Nah, maybe I wasn't the 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 oldest, but I. I, I, they would, they would ask about um, what year did you join and stuff like that, and I was the second oldest that way. Wow, you know, I've it, been it's nineteen eighty four. It's still kind of true though about the business, especially the comedy writing business, that it is a young person's enterprise. Correct. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. There's there's so many great guys out there that can't find work. Yeah, I know. Because they're too expensive, or or uh, or, or a young producer doesn't want to be told what to to do by an older well, guy. Just being intimidated, you you know. Whenever I meet on some of these shows, I try to remain as as small as possible. You know. And that's you know, not I've easy had for you. People tell me when I walk in a room like. Like you just said, oh, you've been around for a long time, and I think you know. Once I hear that, I know I'm not getting the job. <laughs> and and when you try to be small, that's not easy because you're a tall person. I am a tall person. Yeah, uh, I'm usually the tallest one in a writer. Yeah, I I remember looking up to you in more ways than one. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> so all right, so I'm curious, how did you your your first um, serious gig was writing jokes for Hee Haw? Yeah, this Jackie Kahane had a client who shall remain nameless, um, who was also running a company of a, and writing a company that did all these award shows, like Country Music Awards or the Oscars or the Emmys. And he was too busy. He had he had, he had started on Heon. He was too busy. Uh, but he liked the reruns and money and stuff like that. So Jackie asked me if I would ghostwrite with the promise of a job. And I did. And so my, my first, so I would write a batch of, you know, oh, farmer's daughter's jokes mm-hmm. or uh, uh, cornfield jokes or whatever. And you'd write 13 of them, 13 scenes at a time. And then they would ship it to Nashville, where they would shoot all 13, and uh, and then edit them all together. So it was 13 different episodes. And they had several writers doing this. And so I got paid not a lot of money. I think I got $2,000 for a total of like 1000 each. Wow. Which, you know, I had a straight job at the time. I was raising a kid. And uh, so that seemed like kind of a lot of money. And and so when the second season rolled around, uh, they, ah, there's not money in the budget for you. And, well, I thought this guy was going to go to bat for me, and he's busy. And, 
you know, so they kind of screwed me over. So I did another year of it, and uh, just because I was so hungry, you know, and uh, and then he didn't give me a job again, and uh, you know, a real job. So I called the guild, and I said, I'm being considered for heal. Can you tell me what it pays? Well. The minimum was, and this is a guy who'd been on the show for like 18 years that I was writing his material, was like $75,000 a year. <laughs> and I got paid 2000 <laughs> Uh So, because it would be two batches of 13. Um, so I just said, you know, I was really pissed and that disillusioned, disillusioned me. And I can remember... The good part about it, was, or the bad part, depending on how you look at it, is when I sent this material in and I would see it on TV, it was word for word for what I had written. So I could, because they thought it was coming from this guy. And so I got, I got confused into thinking I would never be rewritten, <laughs> um, which of course is... Yeah, nobody ever rewrites anybody. Yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. all it is. It's all rewriting. But, it's all rewriting. But, but writing for that, even though you were getting screwed over, clearly, um, but doing that, you probably learned some really valuable lessons in terms of what to oh, do yeah, to tell a I joke. A of, yeah, I learned a lot of valuable stuff. Um, so, and I'm uh, not suggesting that writers go out there and get underpaid so that they can get training, but, but if that does happen and you do get training out of it, there is some value to it. Yeah. Well, I can remember when when I first arrived here, I was saying like nine months after I was here. This was back in, I got here in the, at the end of 80, and, and I would say by summertime I was going, because I had already left once. In 77, I went back home. It scared me too much right. to be, you know, walking without a, a you know, on a tightrope without a net financially. Sure. I I come from four poor people. Nobody helped me, and uh, uh, and I can remember uh, nine months. I said, I said, what did I do? Because I had this great job with United Parcel Service. I was headed into management, and which is a real solid. It's a real solid company with real solid benefits who take care of their own. And I said, I gave that all up. And now look at me, I'm loading vending machines to make a buck. And, and I, was, I was really worried. So I made a determination right then and there that I would take anything that was offered to me, anything just to get mainly a few bucks, but, but also the experience. And I, I wrote for this Zoobly Zoo as a kid show yeah. where I gained a lot of confidence because they were doing pretty much word for word what I what I turned in and uh, and it was a fun show I had a kid at the time he liked the show so that made it better and uh, uh, and you know so every little bit more confidence I worked for Thick of the Night uh, um, with Alan Thick on his nightclub act it was all shady with Jackie Kane it was all Alan Thicke tried to pay me in Canadian dollars. Oh, really? Yeah, he was a character. <laughs> how how um, did you get to Jackie Kahane in the first place? How did that happen? 
a friend, um, I had actually gone to the Groundlings and, and uh, uh, with a production company. I, I took the Groundlings to the production company. I said, I said I've got an idea for a show with these guys. It was it was basically an SCTV ripoff. Where I was an old dying mall, and these guys all had shops in the mall. All these groundlings and John Paragon, Sandy Helberg, uh, 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 Phil. Uh, God, I, you know. Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman. How can you forget Phil Hartman? The great Phil Hartman. Um, yeah, Edie McClurg, All these great characters. Mm-hmm. And so people were, even though. I was just kind of the idea man, and 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 not the EP by any, but but agents or managers started sending me material for their writers once it was announced in the trades or something, and so there was a manager there I liked uh, who I could talk to on the phone, uh, who handled like just two or three people and. And she was nuts, but I liked her. And she said, uh, I'm too busy. She had like two or three clients. Um, and she says, why don't you try this Jackie Kahane? So I sent a package of material to him, and he told me to come in, and, and that's that's what started it all. So- and then I, through Jackie, I met another writer who I just buried uh, three weeks ago. Our and mutual, or, oh no, somebody, not our mutual friend, someone else. No, no, it wasn't uh, Steve. It was a guy by the name of Dennis Snee. I met in, in Jackie's office, and we became, I was dropping material off, and he was coming to get a check or something, and uh, he was wearing a, spe- oh, you're, you're a Steelers fan probably. He I am a Steelers, you betcha I'm a Steelers fan. <laughs> uh, he was wearing a Steelers jacket, and I think I was wearing a cowboy hat. Cowboys hat, not a cowboy hat. And uh, so I asked him, I said, Hey, Dennis, uh, do you know why the Steelers only have a logo on one side of their helmet? And he said, No. And I said, So Terry Bradshaw knows which way to put on his helmet. <laughs> and he came back at me with some. <laughs> what do they call a drug ring in Dallas? Uh, the the huddle, and uh, so that we you know we were friends for thirty five years. That it started that day, and uh, uh, cut to years later, maybe fifteen years later. I don't know even remember what year it was. Um, I met Whit Thomas under an overall deal. Just for for the audience's sake, Whit Thomas was a production company that that produced soap and um, numerous shows that were huge hits. Benson and Golden so on. Girls, Empty Nest. Golden, exactly. The John LaRiquette show. Yeah. Um, I did like two or three tours of duty with those guys. They were great. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was there under an overall deal, and they had a pilot with Terry Bradshaw attached. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and the guy who wrote it, the network didn't like his script, and so they asked me to to take a pass at it, and uh, so the network approved me, 
and so I took a pass at it. And while I was doing research, I used to, I just wanted, because it was basically about what Terry does, except it was a Monday night football booth and the traveling around and stuff like that. So I asked Dennis, and then, like I said, this was 15 years later, I asked Dennis, do you want to come and meet your childhood hero and stuff? And uh, so I I uh, brought him down to uh, the studio on a Sunday uh, for Fox NFL News or whatever that show is they do. And uh, I introduced him to Terry, and he was thrilled. And, and they actually do throw the football around in the studio right. between takes. And so Terry, Dennis, and I were throwing the, the football around, and Dennis says to Terry Bradshaw, he said, uh, to, to me, in front of Jerry Bradshaw, he says, Hey, David, why don't you tell Terry why the Steelers <laughs> only were there? Oh, it was like one of the best burns I've ever <laughs> I, I got to go to the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, I got off on but, a tangent but, there. But you, but you also got to throw a football around with Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, and I can remember when... He was constantly late for rehearsals and stuff like that. And I can remember once we were, I was standing outside my office waiting for him to pull in so we could start rehearsing. And he got out of his car, and one of the, uh, and he's like 40 yards away from me, and one of the grips threw a football at him, and uh, he caught it. And then he threw it to me right out of the car, 40 yards, oh, wow. like right in my hands. Wow. Like uh, like I didn't have to move at all, you know. Uh, he was an incredible guy, very funny man, just not an actor. Yeah, right. He, he, he Just naturally funny, but not somebody just naturally who funny, but not an actor. Exactly. So so let, let's talk about sitcom work in general. You, sure. you You've certainly worked on some of the most beloved TV comedies of all time, but... Um, for for those listeners who may not know what a sitcom is like or working on one, can you describe what a typical sitcom day is like, if there is such a thing? Well, it depends on the day. You know, if, if, you are, if you're on a Monday through Friday's multi-camp schedule, if you have a table read on a Monday, uh, you go back and, well, first of all, you spend months in pre-production getting scripts ready, stories ready, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So if it's a 22-episode season, you probably come in with six or seven scripts written, and uh, and then you kind of do scripts and stuff like that during hiatus weeks or downtime if you got a good script and you don't need to be rewriting. And, and you need to have that many scripts in advance to allow the, the production people to put sets and so on together. As, right. as well as to be to to really judge whether or not the work is working. Yes. Right. You know, and there's there's showrunners who don't stay ahead, um, and are bad showrunners, and the show suffers for it because they're always doing last second stuff. Right. Um, you know, and then handing it to writers and directors who don't really understand. Uh, all these new changes, you know. And sometimes you have to do it. You have to throw an entire script out after a table read and start from scratch. Mm-hmm. That's tough. Um, 
And it depends on how much money the show has, you know. So, so when you're it's no when big you're deal to build a new set overnight, you know, paying triple golden time or whatever it takes. Right. They don't care, you know, because the show is in such huge profit. So when you're when you're uh, sitting around the the table in the writers' room, can you tell uh, that a script is going to land um, in a table read, or can you not tell? Well, now I certainly can tell. Um, in the beginning, um, not as much, you know. I had really good showrunners to follow, so you know, I've only been on a on a couple that scripts got thrown out completely, right? Uh, and sometimes unnecessarily, you know. Um, so. Uh, my work, my wife worked on Cosby, and he'd just throw stuff out, and they'd work all night, and uh, and uh, you know, so there are those guys, you know, there are the showrunners who just don't want to go home. Life is better for them at the show; they don't have to go home and take out the trash and put the kids to bed. Of course, or deal with their spouse, or deal with their spouse, and a lot of them have what they call show wives which are women that are close to them. They don't have sex with them, but they make sure they eat and, and stuff like that. And I've seen a couple of co-executive producers, female co-executive producer, who's, that's basically all they do. And, uh, uh, and I'm sure it happens the other way around, too, with, uh, with female showrunners. So, sounds, um, sounds like the mafia a little bit. Well, it's just, it's just, it's just, the, you know, a lot of comedy writers are just sad and depressed. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and they don't, they, they, you know, in, in so many cases, they don't, they just don't want to go home. It's not like they're trying for a better product. Um, it's, they just don't want to go home. And, and, this is, this has given them their power in life. And you your know? your preference is to get in, do the work, and go home, yeah? Yeah, you know, I'm working on this show now, and I love it. I mean, I love it. I love being the number two and not having to deal with networks and and stuff like that, just writing and punching. And so so what does num- the being the number two mean? The number two means that you're usually the guy that, if there's a toss-up in the room, we'll have the final say. Um, uh, usually get, you know, you get to plan the day and uh, and see what's going on. You know, if you're the number two and your guy really trusts you, which I believe is the case on this, watch, they won't renew me. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just with him all the time. And he's... He's he's really a great showrunner and multitasker. I just only have one task, and that's to get the, the script ready and uh, uh, do, do edit you, the scripts. And do you uh, run the table? Do you run the room? Uh, sometimes I do. If if they have to go do something else, I can run it. Uh, you know, I've been EP on my own shows. Sure. So I've done everything. Uh, on television shows, I've got you know, I don't know, I produce four hundred shows of t- 
Is that all? Yeah, well... That's a lot yeah, of stuff. I don't know how many, what the number is, uh, but a lot. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think I know my business and my craft. All right, so what, so what makes a, a good writer's room work well? What, what, do you have any tricks or techniques when things aren't going so well? Um, or is it all about chemistry in the room? It really is about chemistry, and y'all. You know, I don't mind, because uh, I'm somewhat of the uh, squeaky wheel. I don't mind a squeaky wheel as long as he or she can make her point. But but there are people who are just squeaky wheel. The room is filled with a lot of interesting characters. The squeaky wheel, who just wants to be heard and doesn't really have a backup plan, just yeah. wants to kill, and, kill whatever happening and whatever momentum you have. And uh, those people are toxic. Um, uh, like I said, I don't mind a squeaky wheel speaking up, but he or she better have a damn backup plan. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't shoot it down, uh, shoot, constantly shoot down stuff. You have the grammar guy or girl who all she does, she's usually the, uh, he or she is usually the partner of the, uh, the more talented of the two, in a, in a, in a, in uh, when on a team, and uh, that person's job, they feel, is to point out commas and periods <laughs> and stuff like that. Quite annoying. Uh, well attached to the person who's actually uh, the funny one, the funny one, and and or the graded story one. And, so, you have story people who are uh, who can really lay the pipe down for you, you know, um, uh, for which you dang your little jokes and stuff on and make it entertaining. But they do they 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 lay the track, as we say, um, and those people are incredibly important. Uh, but they may uh, but they may not be as joke. Uh, savvy as someone else, but you need them to be able to tell the story. Right, exactly. Or, and especially if you break a story to go out there and lay down the track, you know, and then we go in and we say, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, punch this up, punch that up, and you have a script then, and those people are incredibly important and very unsung in our business because everybody wants to be the funniest guy in the room mm-hmm. or girl in the room. Uh, well, good a good comedy team always needs a great straight person. Yeah, it would seem that way. It's just I'd like to see them offer more than commas. So, <laughs> um, uh, but hey, you know, it takes all kinds. So, all right. So, the, obviously, uh, working on a show is um, frequently thought of in the general as pressure packed. What do you do to deal with pressure when it's coming your way? I don't feel it anymore, Steve. I just don't feel the pressure anymore. Okay. I'm so grateful to go to work every day and and uh, be funny um, uh, and and listen to other funny people. Can you imagine that this was my life, that I spent my life trying to make people laugh and in turn, people making me laugh. Mm-hmm. I don't feel the pressure anymore. I did it at one time when I was breaking in, and I wasn't sure it was going to happen. I felt pressure 
But, uh, you know, in 35 years, I've only been not asked back once in wow. my entire career. So, uh, um, that, that, that has to mean that, that you also are uh, someone people want to be around. Well, I don't know about that. A lot of people, you know, I'm, a, you know, politically, you know, I'm a moderate, and I think a lot of people think I'm a right-wing zealot, uh, uh, but I'm really not. I'm just, I'm just so down, the, so middle of the road that it's it's positively boring. That you're you're um, you're to the right of left. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, and you know these tables. That's what you talk about the first half hour of the day. You talk about the day's events, and somebody puts something up on YouTube that's funny that they'd seen last night, and uh, it's all it's all uh, foreplay to a day. You 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 need that to get warmed up, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, to find your voice again. It's it's like whether you're sitting down. Writing by yourself, which is really hard to do, Very. or you're at a table. It's all about having confidence and believing in what you're doing, and uh, and if you do it honestly, you can usually find a way that will resonate with people on some level. Um, and like I was saying, Bill Burr is a fabulous example of that. Right? Do do you? Um wind up working with long-time experienced pros in the same room with rather new writers or even baby yes. writers? And how does what's that work? disappearing is the middle of the room. Mm -hmm. That's what's disappearing. And it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it means a lot more work. Um, uh, but, you know, I and others have created a lot of great babies uh, who have gone on to do big things right. and stuff. And, uh, so that's enjoyable, you know. But what's gone out of a lot of these rooms are the guys I was talking about, the track layers and the, the middle, the producer, the supervising producer. They just they seem to be disappearing and their wages are shrinking. Do you, do you think that that's a monetary problem? Or is it some other reason? Yeah, for it's like... It's like uh, you know, between money being siphoned off for packaging, mm -hmm. uh, which I've been against for years and years, um, and which we're in a labor dispute with the with the agencies yes. right now. Um, so there's less money there. There's more shows, uh, a lot more shows than when I first started. Um, but all the you know, uh, you know, some Netflix. Sitcom uh, uh, is getting the same number as a as a network sitcom. Oh yeah, for sure. And stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's all kind of uh, I don't know what the right word for it is, but it's oh. all kind of diluted, and there's not as many concentrations of great people on a show. Uh, as there used to be. Do you, do you think that the, the proliferation of shows in general has diluted it where there are more writers needed, but the, the, the truly great writers are less and less found? Yes, absolutely, yes. And, and, absolutely. 
Yeah, and, and um, certainly... Like I say, sometimes you'll find a, what we call baby writers or staff writers um, who he or she will just nail it, and they're just in, and they get this kind of a wisdom uh, and confidence again uh, to what they're doing. And those that's a joy to see because it reminds you of when... Uh, you came in and you were hoping somebody would take notice of you. Sure, of course. Well, it, you know, when, when uh, you were coming up in the business, which was not too different from when I was coming up in the business time-wise, it was uh, very much a, uh, it, it was a little harder to get work perhaps because there was less of it, but the, but the concentration and the people that were in the rooms were a whole different breed. Yeah, they're, you know, I, you know, the, the, my first real sitcom where I sat in a room all the time was the new Leave it to Beaver, and uh, Brian Levant ran that show. Sure. And I was brought in as a paper partner. I'd have never even met my partner. Really? So they could get two of us for the price of one. Well, yeah, that's what they do with the partners, so they put you together, yeah? Right. Was, yeah. was Were Sestarsic and Silverman on that? I don't know if they did that show. I know that they, they worked you know, with we all did the, the Flintstones together, yeah, yeah. and uh, and uh, they're really there. There was a partnership. I hired him on Manhattan AZ. They were my number twos. I, I, I know you hired me too for one episode. Yeah, there you go. They're big supporters of yours, and uh, uh, and they were ones who. You know, Steve was crazy, but crazy funny. Crazy and funny. Silverman is just calmly funny. And so there there were no commas guys on that team. No, you know, they no, were no. Both, they were both, uh, they came up with so many of the story ideas for Manhattan. Actually, I couldn't be more grateful. Uh, Steve Sestarsik, our, our mutual friend who unfortunately passed away last year, um, was for, for me because I knew him from all the way back from USC. We went to school together, and for me, he, he, I don't know anyone ever in my life who had a more twisted and brilliant sense of humor than him. He was awesome, and one uh, of a kind. He was awesome. He was crazy funny. My wife also knows him from I think it was Tom or something. Yes, like that. Tom. Sure, Tom. And, Tom Arnold. Yeah. And we loved Steve, and, you know, I kind of lost physical touch with him when he moved, after his parents died, and yeah. he moved down to Orange County. I never, but we were fa- we were fast Facebook friends, and we kind of, politically, we were kind of the same, <laughs> yes. although he would go a little extreme to the yes. right yes. at times. Yes. Um, uh, like, there's no way I could support Trump. There's just, there's just no way. Well, uh, but I also couldn't have supported Hillary, so luckily I lived in a state uh, where my vote doesn't really matter because it's always Democratic. <laughs> That's true. So I just wrote in a candidate, uh, and my conscience was clear. But yeah, I love Steve. I was I, I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and I was I was furious with him. Uh, because he he did this to himself. Yeah, and, unfortunately. Uh, uh, and it was an open casket, and yeah. he I, he was almost unrecognizable. He had gained so much weight. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that's 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 a that's a sad story, and for per- perhaps another day. 
But he, the great thing about him is that he could, he was a machine. He could just churn jokes out. Yeah. And I, I will never forget, you could say to Steve, Steve, I've got this line and I don't have a great punchline for it. And he'd go off and about 20 minutes later, there'd be 30 lines he would have churned yeah, out. Yeah, that's sitcom writing, you know. We do. You find those guys, and if you come to a place where you know you're in the right area, but you can't close it or you can't figure it out, but you know you're in the right area, you send your best guy and maybe another person to bounce ideas off of into a separate room and say, come back in 20 minutes. And Steve was that guy. Yeah, he was that guy. And he he was like, he just churn them out. And, you know, 90% of them would not be usable, but there'd be one or two or three gems in there and you, you'd have something. 90% of everything is not usable. That, that's true, isn't it? Yeah, nine, it you know, is. It's like if you sell one out of 10 ideas you pitch to a showrunner. Uh, that's, that's successful. Yeah, that, that's very good. So, okay, the old line is that dying is easy, but comedy is hard. What is it about? Can you define what makes comedy so challenging to do well? Well, I find it really hard to do now because of the of the political correctness. So that's like taking seventy percent of my material off the table. It seems because you can't say nasty things about people. You can't, and you can't. You know, the, the the great thing about this show I'm working on, one of the reasons is because it's so freeing, is because the show takes place in the 70s where people were saying racist stuff mm-hmm. and, and homophobic stuff. And so we can explore the humanity and ignorance of these comments, um, you know, with the benefit of history looking back. Um, and it becomes very funny. Uh, uh, some of these uh, generalizations and stuff that we do. Um, because that's the way it used to be. You know, our show play- takes place in 1974, and uh, uh, that's the way people used to talk and and stuff like that. But it's like, I don't get half the stuff that's on now. I don't know. I don't even know how it qualifies as comedy. Mm-hmm. But... Well, sometimes you see at the the Emmys or the Golden Globes, you see shows that are in the, the comedy category, and you go, that's not a comedy, it's a drama. Right. My favorite was um, a few years back, the Golden Globes, which is basically you pay for that award, um, was, was, there was a movie called The Martian that yes. was in the comedy category. Yes, it made no sense at all. It made absolutely, what? What? This makes... So, you know, like I say, everything gets diluted. The, the Academy Awards are diluted. And uh, and I, I, I just read that, is it the Emmys or something like that, is not going to have a host this year. And it's because they, they're so afraid of what the host will say. Of course. You know, and it's like, that's insane. But that also that's, opened, that opens them up to the possibility that other people will say insane things. So Right, you know. It's like, I remember when Ricky Gervais hosted the Golden Globe, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't really much care for what he had to say about things, and I thought he was, like, drunk, and, and but it's like, he got to say it, and he killed with it. Yeah. People love that stuff, just because I didn't want it. And it's like, um, but now it's like, it's like, 
you almost already have to have a reputation of being an outlier to say that. I don't think there's many people coming up there. No, and it's getting harder and harder to get to be an outlier. Yes, it is. It's like, uh, uh, you know, Bill Burke can do it. Uh, there's a few guys who can do it. Well, it's, just, it's, a, it's now more of a specific thing than, it, than ever before. Um, but, you know, we were talking about Rickles before, and, and that was his specific thing. I think Rickles would have a hard time today if he were just starting out. Oh, there's no way in hell he could do it. Yeah. Johnny Carson couldn't do uh, what he did. Um, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, I remember, it was about two or three years ago, and believe me, I hate Trump, but the way they came after Jimmy Fallon for tousling the jerk's hair was like, what? Stop it already. Yeah. You know, it's like... The political correctness. It's, it's run amok, and people, you know, it used to be an insult to call someone politically correct. Now, people are starting to wear it like a badge. Yeah, exactly. And, well, uh, you know, there's people still out there like Bill Maher who d- does what he does, which is a very specific thing. Right, and he's very successful. Very successful at it. Um, I, I, I'm curious, you've, obviously over time, you've probably read lots of uh, scripts by novice writers. Um, who are trying to break in. What are some of the common mistakes that that novice writers make that they should not do? Well, first of all, get a copy of the script for the show you're writing or if you're writing a pilot. um, uh, uh, You know, find a pilot, you you know, pilot script you like and look at the format of it. and when you're done with it, have somebody proof it for you, because there's no bigger sign of an amateur than a dirty script. Yeah. Um, but I would say, especially nowadays, write what you know, and uh, and so if you've got uh, a, uh, an idea where you want to be able to show your point of view, um, uh, a pilot, you you know, that you can wrap your point of view around, then that's what you should write, because that's what you know best, especially right now, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, it used to be that that producers wouldn't even read pilots when I first started out. They weren't interested in pilots. No. They wanted to see, you know. An existing show. The show that that broke me open was a married with children that I had written. Um, uh, I had written a Barney Miller that was well received. Um, but I never even thought about writing a pilot until I sold the pilot. You know? No, it used to so, be you, ha- you, ha- you were obliged to write a spec of an existing show. Yeah, because that's what you're being hired to come in. <laughs> on an existing show. <laughs> on a specific show. And, uh, anyway, I just don't understand the practice. Uh, although I did hire a couple of baby writers on Manhattan AZ, as we had talked about, um, who wrote a fabulous pilot, uh, so I could be wrong. I do read them, but it's rare that, that I understand half of them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's a tough thing to write a pilot, especially a, a spec pilot. It's really... 
a tough thing to not to write it, but to get it read. I imagine uh, it's 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 helpful to write a pilot that has a specific voice on it, like a like a, a, a comedian that people know. Right. As right. opposed well, to you're unknown. lucky if you're working with a comedian, you know, and that is known. Um, you know, even if they're just known within the industry. Right. Um, but and then come up with a compelling story, a story. The story is, you know, we've talked a lot about jokes and stuff like that, but the story is the most important thing. And uh, uh, and through a great story, you can reveal character. And through character, you can that's where you find your humor because you've established attitudes or whatever. So, um, so yeah, the story is really important, you know, which is why... I always say write what you know because it's it's more personal. I mean, the the show that I I won my award for the Humanitas was right after I got out of the hospital with cancer, and oh. I wrote it about one of the characters being afraid of cancer mm-hmm. uh, because she's you know she's in that they took the biopsy and she's in that window uh, where she's waiting, which is terrifying. Uh, and so I knew that. I knew that, what that felt like, what that looked like from my own personal experience. Everybody's experience is is different, of course, but, um, yeah, it was so, terrifying. So and I was, it, 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 you know, that's, you, you got to something that was deeply in your heart, and that's what touches people. Yes. And, yes. and when you can get to that point where you're you're doing a story that's that touches people, the jokes, assuming the jokes are there and they should be, assuming the jokes are there, you have a winner just because people are suddenly going to be uh, um, enthralled by the by being touched by the story. Right. And exactly. Otherwise, otherwise it's just all hee haw. Right. It's just exactly. You know, for years I was known. Uh, as uh, one agent told me, you're the guy with the ticker. And what do you mean? You write with heart. You're hysterical and you write with heart. And so I was kind of known as that guy for a while. I, I don't think anybody on the staff of this new show would would call <laughs> me that guy. But, uh, You've lost I, your heart, David? Is that right? No. No, I'm just joking. No, <laughs> the Ephesus family has a lot of heart. Uh, yeah, of course and it does. That's why critics love it. So... Um, so, and I'm just, you know, the, a small cog in that whole operation. Well, but you're, an, you're again, you're not that small, but, but more importantly, uh, you, you're an important cog in that whole operation. Right. So it, it's, it, that show is, is uh, you know, the brainchild of Bill Burr and Mike Price, who's been on The Simpsons for 20 years. Well, again, you had Bill Burr's voice, and that helps. Yes. It, it and does. Mike Price is an excellent writer. Sure. And, and there's a lot of there's a lot of humor that comes out of Mike grew up in New Jersey and had a similar father, not the same father as Bill had, but similar enough. And uh, and he's just he's a great showrunner. He's a great showrunner and writer and producer. And uh, these guys are hard to find. I've run, I, you know, Chuck Lorre, you know, a little on the mean side, but. What a great showrunner. Don Rio is probably the best showrunner I've ever worked right. with. He did Laura Cat and 
other things I've worked with him on. Did he do news uh, radio? Was that him? Who's that? Was did he do news radio, Don Rio? No, um, Don. You know, Don started writing on Laughing. Oh, Laughing. Uh, 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 he actually started. He was um, Slappy White's White Straight Man. Oh wow! Yeah, he started submitting jokes to Slappy, and Slappy said, "Come on the road with me." And uh, the next thing you know, he's 19 years old, being the straight man in an orange tuxedo on the stage at the Apollo Theater. <laughs> so he's got, he's done MASH, he's done, still working. He just finished this Ashton Kutcher thing on Netflix. I forget the name of it. Yeah, but, I think I saw something on that too. Yeah. Do you have any advice for um, writers coming in to pitch? What, to, what should writers do in a pitch and what should they avoid? Um it's funny. You want to be aggressive, but not too aggressive. Uh, pitching is different when now they want more information than they used to used to pitch in and say, "These are the characters, and here's the pilot story." Now they 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 want a lot more. Sometimes they even want it in writing, which is kind of vulgar in a, in its own way. Mm. Um, uh, but you know. Like I said, you know, because I think there's an analogy here somewhere. When I was a little bit into it, I said, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And when I made up my mind to just go for it, that kind of changed everything, not to be timid. And uh, So you were being less so self-reflective. Don't be timid. Don't be an asshole. Know your stuff. Know the story you want to tell. Make make your pitch entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um because uh, who doesn't like to laugh? Uh, although I know some network executives who refuse to laugh. But, uh, I remember once I was pitching to a network, it was like pitching to Mount Rushmore. Did, 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 you, did you ever see the, the show Episodes? I did. I did. I liked it very much. So there was, the, there was the head of comedy who just had no sense of humor at all. Right. That's oftentimes the case. Not so much... Uh, anymore but uh, uh, but you know and I haven't really run into that problem uh, a lot I can usually I can usually lighten the room mm-hmm. but it took me a long time to develop that um, that skill so, so there are and, there are natural pitchers and there are people that learn to be good pitchers and yeah I think I I learned the hard way I just kind of got beat up. I've never taken a class on how to pitch. They I, just didn't exist. I don't think I ever actually got good at it. I was always too nervous. Yeah, well, you got to blow past that. You really do. Um, that's You just have to, because they don't want, they don't want to be in business with a guy who they make nervous. Sure. If you look, or a girl that uh, uh, that they make nervous. Um, uh so you gotta, you've just got to push through it, and it's tough. Sometimes it feels like it's impossible, but it's not impossible. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a, a learnable skill set, but it's nevertheless very hard to do well. Right. And, and le- right. Unless, you're, unless you've been doing it forever, and it's just, you're just tossing it out, and it's natural for you. Um, right. And that's not, I think that's not common at all. I think it's... Right. So... Um, there are people out there who 
are really bad writers but great in the room in a in a pitch and uh, that's why you end up with a lot of bad television because <laughs> they get so you know i guess the thing is do your homework on your pi- on your own pilot um you got to know where you if you're if you're pitching a series a, a brand new show you got to know where that show is going going now especially if you're on a a streaming service who are buying a lot of continuing storyline comedy now where it used to be more kind of episodic mm-hmm. um, so they want to know what the beginning is of your series not necessarily the show the middle and the end they want to know how you would end the series in three years sometimes and uh, that's a lot more than I used to have to think about sure you, you you'd come up with your story your characters and and uh, maybe come up with seven to ten stories but but now you have to figure out what the whole arc of the whole series is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just it's just tougher. It's just harder. It's just a higher just higher harder. bar. Yeah. So no, so uh, believe it or not, we've been talking for a good hour and five minutes. Oh. And, and um, I you know I I know that over your time you've met more than your share of characters and you've been in more than your share of oddball experiences. Can you share with us any kind of um, uh, quirky offbeat weird or just plain funny story that that uh you've been through oh god there's so many um uh uh i remember for i worked on the john laurequette show for a couple of years and the entire first year uh, uh i came in after they had done the show for one year and so i was like the new guy the second year and uh, and he, 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 no matter how many times I corrected him, he just wanted to call me Doug. <laughs> hey, Doug. Like it was like a, you know, it was like, it was like Lauricat's way of, of needling me. And uh, after I won the Humanitas, he, he started calling me by my real name. <laughs> and... Uh, and I always just got such a kick out of that that uh, it was probably his way of, in hindsight, his way of uh, uh, showing some sort of camaraderie that we call the new guy by his wrong name. Um, there was a guy on Two and a Half Men who was the number two uh, when I was there who, who always, for a year, called me the new guy. <laughs> the new guy. The new guy has a good pitch. It's like I've been sitting across from you for eight months. You know my name. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and, you know, speaking of two and a half men, that's kind of a a, a really compelling story. Uh, for me, it is, is that I was there on Charlie's last good year. Right. The year he fell apart, and we only did like a half a season. And then the Ashton Kutcher years, and... I always thought, ooh, and 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 I always thought that I could write a book called "My Two and a Half Years on Two and a Half." Ooh, it's a good title. And, uh, unla- there was some great stuff that I remember Charlie Sheen saying. It was after it was during that second year, and he had gotten busted for beating up his wife in uh, Aspen. Uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday. Right. And we were at the table, Reed and Chuck Lorre, 
you know, got everyone's attention, and then turned to Charlie and said, so what did you do over Thanksgiving? <laughs> One of his tabloid fodder that he had been in jail. He goes, well, I met Kobe's bail bondsman, and he was a nice guy. <laughs> so, you know, being privy to those kind of things is, is always fun. And uh, like I did with Dennis, I love bringing people in to meet their heroes. I brought in a lot of people to meet Bill Burr. Um, that, 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 that's very fulfilling when you can do that. It is. It's like a like this little gift that you get to give that's not really yours to give but you can you can uh, be the middleman in it all I guess um, but yeah there's always kind of remember I, I pitched a, a pilot but I actually sold it um, where to ABC years ago um, about a father's and son, he had just gone through a divorce, and his brother, and I had just gone through uh, a divorce. And uh, while I was pitching it, I was so nervous, I literally sweat through my my shirt, and you could see the rings and stuff like that. And I could <laughs> I could smell myself. You know, <laughs> they call it they don't call it flop sweat for no for reason. Nothing, it's a, yeah. It really does have a different smell to it. It's the smell of fear, and. Uh, uh, but I sold it. I was I just kept plowing ahead. So, so all right. Yeah. L- l- last question of the day: um, Do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip for those who are just starting out? I know we've already talked a little bit about some of this stuff, but is do you have a, a piece for someone starting out, or someone who perhaps is in the in the uh, industry a little bit, but trying to get to that next level? Keep writing. Obviously, yeah. Uh, don't ever give up, because if you do, you you lose. Um, uh, you have to be able to read people well. Um, network as much as you can. Um, if you find, like I network with a lot of kids in classes I'm asked to speak at and stuff like that. Right. And be, why? Because they come up to me and say, I want to network with you, basically. Um, so, But you're, you know, you're open to I, that, yes? Yeah, I'm open to that, as, you know, as long as I'm not, I'm not advertising it, but I am open to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can tell by the questions that they, they ask during a class or something, usually, of uh, whether or not they're, they're on the ball, whether or not they get it. Um, uh, uh, but mainly just to keep writing and uh, uh, writing and networking, you know. You know, and if you're a, if you're a comedy writer, keep your sense of humor. Well, that's that's helpful. <laughs> right, you got to. I mean, you even like I say, I didn't. I hated performing, and and I just had to overcome that. Even. Even in a small space, I had to overcome that. So I think that you've just given us a, a, a long and great series of pieces of advice all through the whole interview, and um, it is this has just been a great joy for me to have you on the show because we hadn't talked for some time. And yeah, uh, it's been a lot of fun. 
I really, really enjoyed having you on, and, and I'm so grateful that you were able to spend a little time with me here today on Storybeat. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And so we've come to the end of today's Storybeat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.